We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. This week on the Sword Cinema Podcast, we're taking a look at Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space, based on the H.P. Lovecraft short story, The Color Out of Space. Uh, it was directed by Richard Stanley and also written by Stanley and Scarlett Amaris. Here's a clip from Color Out of Space. Look at this. All those years in the big city, we finally got out. We're living the dream. Maybe it is a dream. light or actually i don't even know what color it was it wasn't like any color i'd ever seen before looks like a meteorite it's radioactive i mean it's from space right meteorites are generally no more dangerous than ordinary rocks how can something that big just disappear did you plant those no ward you come here for a sec oh god what are you doing? Shh. It's talking to me. Who's talking to you? A man in the well. All right. That was a clip from Color Out of Space, uh, directed by Richard Stanley. It is. It follows uh, uh, the story of a farmer and his family who discover that a meteorite has crashed in their front yard, and things start going weird. This thing may be from outer space and it may have some sort of alien life that slowly starts driving people mad as it poisons the earth and the water around them uh that's a pretty brief synopsis there's, there's quite a bit that goes on in this movie uh a lot to unpack i would say um but first i want to ask rick you were the one that, that picked color out of space so why did you pick this movie okay so here's the thing so i saw the movie at the film festival with tom last year I remember when the movie ended, I wanted to ask Tom, did you like the movie? And I was actually worried because I thought I was the only person who liked the movie because the movie is deeply flawed. So it took me about a minute, got up the courage, turned to Tom, was like, hey, did you like the movie? And he said, yeah, I loved it. So there's a lot of reasons why I think people should be interested in seeing this movie. You know, Nicolas Cage in a genre film, being Nicolas Cage, wild. I love the cinematography. I love the way it looks. It's a film by Richard Stanley, who hasn't made a movie in over two decades, if you don't count his neo-Nazi documentary, which no one saw. There's a lot of reasons to be intrigued to watch this movie. And about a week later, I spoke to our colleague Simon Howell, and we were talking about the movie, and he was like, man, I really didn't like this movie. And so I started talking to him. And it's weird because it all made sense. Like everything he was saying, I totally agreed with. Like, you know, things we can talk about throughout the podcast, but just deeply flawed movie. But what's really strange about this movie is I feel like Richard Stanley did everything right when it came to doing everything that was really hard. Like the things that most filmmakers would get wrong in a low budget genre film he seemed to do right, like specifically at the end with the special effects, the practical effects, um, you know, stuff like that, right? But then he seemed to do everything wrong for what should be really easy, like character development, directing the actors, um, stuff like that. And so I, I was like, I need to see this movie again. And that's like, that's the whole point of this podcast is we watch a movie and we try to rewatch a movie at least two more times before we sit down and discuss the movie so it can really soak in. Now, this movie came out officially on VOD and theatrically about two weeks ago. It's been about, like, I think, uh, Tom, we saw the movie way back in October, right? 
Yeah. Uh, at I really want to. So really that. quickly, I want to introduce. So this is Tom. Our guest today is Thomas <laughs> O'Connor, who's a, a movie critic and writes for Goombastop.com as well. Sorry, Thomas, I forgot the intros at the beginning of the podcast, <laughs> but now you've been probably introduced. <laughs> That's all right. So anyhow, uh, before Thomas takes over, like the thing is, is that this is based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft. And from my understanding, it is his favorite story of all the stories he's written. It's the only story that he was actually proud of. Now, H.P. Lovecraft is a very compl complicated man or was. Um and he, you know, that's not really saying much. Like, he, he didn't like anything, including his own work. But what I find interesting about the, 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 the story is it's the villain. Because the villain is, like, a color. It's a color which you can't imagine. And so it's like, if I, if I sit down right now and I tell... If I ask Patrick right now, hey, Patrick, can you imagine a color you've never seen before? Like, you really can't. Like, you're going to think of a color that's pro probably going to be a mix of orange and yellow or red and blue. But how do you how do you bring a color to screen that no one's ever seen? Now, in this case, it's really just a, a purple hue or like a pinkish, like purple color. But still, it's it's like it's like an interesting premise. And, and it's been adapted before to the big screen a few times. But I think of all of the H.P. Lovecraft adaptations, this is one of the best, even if you don't really like the movie, I still think it's a good adaptation because his work is really hard to adapt to the screen. So anyways, yeah, I, there's a lot to talk about. And um, I think after watching it three times, I can't say it's a great movie, but I do, I do, I would recommend people to watch it if you like genre film. So I, I definitely fall in the line of like, uh, I'm more on Simon's view on this point. However, I, I'm with you, Rick, that I wouldn't stop somebody from watching this because Obviously, I think that you should watch all kinds of movies. And I I said this on our uh, a couple episodes ago when we did In the Mouth of Madness that I'm not the biggest fan of Lovecraftian horror. Um, so it does, it just doesn't resonate with me. And of course, that one that movie resonated a little bit more because I really like John Carpenter and it wasn't directly based on one of Lovecraft's works. This one is, uh, although it is modified to, to, to fit in modern times. The original story took place in the 1800s. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I definitely fall more in line with your friend Simon's views on this. Uh, I, I could definitely point out a lot of flaws, but there are some interesting things in this as well that genre fans should check out to see if they like this kind of horror. And Thomas, you're one of those people that, that likes this, I, I'm assuming. Oh, definitely. And also a fairly big Lovecraft fan. So direct adaptations of Lovecraft are kind of few and far between precisely for the reason that Lovecraft is hard. Lovecraft is very hard to do on the screen, especially if you're adapting his stories as written and not just the kinds of um, ideas that he liked to play with. But um, yeah, as, as Rick uh, mentioned, color out of space has been uh, brought to the screen a few times. There was um a 1960s movie with uh, Nick Adams called Die, Monster, Die, which was very, very, very loosely based on Color Out of Space. There was also one in the 80s called The Curse with Will Wheaton. Um, and I was thinking about the reason why that story in particular has been brought to the screen more times than any other Lovecraft story, I think. There have been scattered direct adaptations, but none uh, as many as Color Out of Space. And I think the reason why is that it deals with a lot of the themes he normally uh, normally worked with, the, this idea of intrusion from some kind of outside force. But in this case, it, it sort of becomes more easy to grasp uh, without getting into all kinds of weird metaphysical, you know, barely comprehensible space madness. It's really more, you know, a rock comes down from the sky, starts uh, stuff starts growing weird and, you know, you're off to the races. And I think the reason I really like this movie still, despite the many flaws that, uh, that have uh, sort of come up is that, really does nail that weird unknowable atmosphere without getting too strange which i was kind of ready for stanley to do to get way too out there 
but he sort of walks a fine line in this between sort of standard horror tropes and the more weird, trippy Lovecraft style, you know, hijinks that I think fans of his are really, really going to be looking for. Now, I, I have a question because the first thing that this movie reminded me of was a cross between two movies. And one of them is we we're all I'm always going to bring up this movie because it relates to nearly everything that I think about. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes. Uh, and that's sort of the the infection paranoia that, that gets in. But the other one was um, Annihilation, Alex Garland's Annihilation, which, of course, yeah. mm. I think was probably inspired by the book in many ways. It was it itself was based on another novel, which probably mm. was inspired by a little bit by Colorado Space. But it had that similar feeling. Now, would you say that now Annihilation was a very strange movie that I absolutely loved. Mm. Uh, would you say that this movie is weirder than Annihilation, because the end of Annihilation is very, very um, obtuse. Cerebral. <laughs> um, uh, cerebral um, hard to parse. Yeah, um, it's hard to say if this movie is weirder than Annihilation, because, I mean, this movie has a scene where Nicolas Cage milks an alpaca. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of hard to top in terms of weirdness. Um, I think the uh, they're kind of on an even keel in terms of visuals, uh, certainly in terms of body horror. They're very, very much playing in similar ballparks. But I think... Uh, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. I'm going to say no. No? Uh, yeah, because I think the last 20 minutes of this movie actually reminded me of The Mist. And mm. I, I, oh, actually, I, yeah, yes. I, I actually did, of course, think of The Thing. But, of course, John Carpenter was uh, was inspired by H.P. Lovecraft when making The Thing. Um, Annihilation came to mind. Uh, uh, oh, early Spielberg Amblin Entertainment PG-13 mm. rated horror films like Poltergeist came to mind, especially in the middle act. Uh, you know, there's the entire sequence in which Nick Cage is standing in front of the TV set and and it's glowing with this, like, intense bluish hue. Uh, that whole sequence reminded me of Poltergeist. But I don't think it's as strange as a movie like Annihilation. It's clearly not as good as that movie. Mm-hmm. I think the thing is it's Nick Cage. Nick Cage is, I think, the reason why the movie works. Because when Nick Cage starts to lose it, that is when I sort of felt myself interested. Like, the the whole point of this podcast, for anyone who's a new listener, is we try to focus on what we like. We try to be positive. We try to talk about the filmmaking process. We don't want to be one of those movie podcasts that just, like, tears apart a movie for 45 minutes. Um, that's just not what we do. We used to do that, and we don't want to do it anymore. And so <laughs> there, there's things I want to say. Like, I wasn't really... Uh, invested in the characters in the opening act like I didn't care much for the kids and I'm not entirely sure who's to blame if it's the direction or the screenplay or the actual story Um, but when Nick Cage starts losing it that's when I started liking the movie because to me the movie is like yeah there's elements of body horror which reminds you of like David Cronenberg films right and that's great, and I love the the uh, old school makeup and prosthetics, and you know, it, of course, there is a little bit of CGI, but a lot of it's still like old school techniques that they use when creating these like body horror effects. But the reason why I like the movie enough to recommend it is because to me, it's really a a movie about a family that's slowly falling apart. Because in the in the movie, when the movie starts, the mom is sick, like she has cancer. You know, as the movie progresses. All the characters start losing their minds. Like they all start mental, like going mentally insane. But they also sort of like their bodies decay. Like the, I think the actually I shouldn't say this now because we're going to talk about it at the end of the show. But one of the best sequences revolves around the mom and the youngest son. Yeah. After they get hit by the, I guess lightning. It was like uh, the, the color. They got hit, they by, got hit like by the, the color. Bla- blast of the color. Yeah. Right. And so there's a scene where they bring the son and the mom into the house and they, 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 they place them on the couch, but the camera doesn't reveal what they look like. Like we know, we know, like we know something's wrong. We hear them screaming and in, in pain. Uh, and we know they're most likely deformed and, 
the camera sort of like teases us, right? It's it it slowly dollies into the couch, but it never actually reveals w what they look like. Like they never, we never see the aftermath at that point in time. And I like that. I, I like I like the direction of Richard Stanley in those specific scenes because. As we've said a million times on this podcast, when you leave it up to the imagination of the viewers, it's always more terrifying than if you actually just show it. And I thought that sequence really, really worked. It was incredibly effective. It's one of the strongest scenes in the movie, I think. Afterwards, when they move uh, them slash it up to the, um, the attic, uh, continues a lot of really strong body horror like really, really unsettling, which is something it's hard to imagine still being effective because it's been done uh, by so many talented filmmakers. But yeah, the the body horror in this really gets under the skin, I think, and it that's uh, d deserves quite a bit of praise, I think. Yeah, and those are the moments. I, I mean, that moment specifically. Obviously, what happens to the mom and the son was very evocative of the thing, in sort mm -hmm. of like the way that uh, that that. Uh, bodies could be twisted or melded together um and, and you know annihilation as well the sort of this changing there's some sickness it's a, it's a, it's not even a sickness it's like a it, you get the feeling that it could be perceived as a sickness but it also could be perceived as just a new evolution kind of thing that there's nothing necessarily wrong with this living thing taking over but it's not necessarily right for the people that are there as well. And it's this kind of clash of, of things, which which Annihilation was very much about. You know, there, there wasn't anything necessarily nefarious uh, about the, what was happening in the Shimmer. Um, and yet at the same time, it would drive uh, humans, you know, insane, which is what was going on in this movie as well. So, you know, after that meteorite poisons the water, well, it poisons, it changes the water and it changes life around it and crops start getting bigger and, and uh, you know, all of a sudden the grass starts turning purple for some reason, and it's it, that kind of stuff. It looks very, very cool. They did an absolutely fanta fantastic job with the the color in this movie, <laughs> which you'd have to do with a movie called Colorado Space. But all of the effects, like you say, the practical effects on the body horror were all very well done. And the, what little CGI there was, it is not the kind of CGI that it, that annoys me. It was. Definitely, like, that's low-budget CGI done right, because they, they didn't use it in the wrong places. They used practical effects where they needed to. They enhanced stuff with CGI, but it wasn't like they fully relied. It never took me out of the moment, like so much CGI does in much bigger-budget movies. Um, I always felt that everything was at least grounded in this. Except for, I think it was like a dragonfly. There's like an insect that we yeah, see no. early on. There's like a kind of thing. There was no need for a CGI dragonfly slash insect flying around. Like, things like that uh, kind of, like, took me out of the movie. Because you can't help but notice. It's, like, it, it's it's jarring, right? Like, you have this movie that doesn't really rely on much CGI. And all of a sudden you have this, like, CGI insect creation, like, flying around the screen. But the cinematography is is amazing. It's, like, it, it, it's not just about the colors. Like, it, it's a beautiful-looking film because it also takes place... I guess it's like a uh, it's not really a farm, but it's it's like the countryside. It's like yeah. in, in I think like below or on top of like a mountain. It's like out in the middle of nowhere. So you, there's a lot of like beautiful outdoor shots. There's just like one great shot where you just it just captures the whole entire area. Like it's like a far wide bird's eye view shot of the. See, like I don't even want to call it a town because it's not really a town. They live close to a they town. Outskirts of a small town in in on the east coast in Massachusetts called Arkham. Uh, yeah, so it's 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 definitely very very rural Massachusetts, but it it has this old feeling, which of course you'd associate with the east coast, right? A, a little more than you would in other places in the United States. So yeah, it's supposed to be like an ancient woods, uh, and those opening shots displaying the ancient woods are they're fantastic. I mean, I think. That, for me, was the best cinematography in the movie. There's a lot of great shots in this movie, but the, the very opening, I thought, draws you in really, really quickly. Yeah, I very much agree. So the cinematographer, his name is Steve Annis, and, I, I mean, we're going to get to this at the end of the show, but I think he's the MVP because the movie just looks gorgeous. But there's also, like, these great shots. Like, I already mentioned the shot when the camera sort of, like, dollies into the couch but doesn't reveal what they look like. But even towards the end, like, the last 20 minutes, uh, I thought... They, they did a fantastic job with the tracking shots and following the characters through the woods and creating, like, the suspense 
and at the same time still hiding these creatures that come out of nowhere and attack them. I just love the out-of-sync shots. I think it's brilliant, but also I think the score is amazing. Uh, Colin Stetson, I believe, is the composer's name. He just delivered a fantastic score, which really sets the mood right away, and it creates this, like, dense melody. Like, it's like this vivid soundscape. It's hard. Like, I'm not... The thing about me is, like, I like... I always notice the music in films. Like, I love movie soundtracks, but... I, I do not play an instrument. I've never been trained in, in anything related to like composing music, right? So it's like it's hard for me to really describe why I like the soundtrack, but I just felt it was unsettling. Even like the quiet, peaceful moments still felt unsettling because of the score, like even the opening scene. So the production values across the board are fantastic. Nick Cage, the thing about Nick Cage is like, I love how he's so committed to genre film because I love genre movies, right? And there was a, a, a point in time, what, maybe like from 2000 to 2007, I'm not entirely sure what the dates were, but he was making some really bad movies and he was really bad in the movies like The Wicker Man or was it The Wicker Tree and Ghost Rider. And now recently he's starring in all of these low budget independent genre films and he's just amazing in them. And let's face it, if he wasn't in a movie like Mandy or The Color Out of Space, I don't think this movie would have ever been picked up for distribution. I, I don't dislike the movie. Like, like I think, Patrick, you're not, you're not really hot on the movie. I don't love it. I'm kind of like in between. Yeah, I'm not in between at all, <laughs> but I can, but I can at least, like I say, we, we want to talk about the positive stuff because you can find positives in almost any movie and there are positives here. I think that, like you said, the production values in this movie are very, very good and, and uh, especially for what their budget was. And there is some skill um, behind the direction as well. Some of the direction, um, the writing, of course, which is where I take issue with almost anything I really have big issues with is uh, where I have my biggest issue. But um yeah, Nicolas Cage, I like, I enjoy his performances. He does go over the top off uh, too often in too many movies, I think. Um, that's what he's there for, though. Yeah. And you either have to roll with that, because that's why you're seeing this movie. It's Nicolas Cage kind of almost experimenting. A lot of directors give him sort of a free reign. And it works sometimes, and sometimes it might not work as well. But it's always entertaining, because you're watching somebody go for it. And a movie like this needs that. It needs that that burst of, of energy that he can bring. Now, he may get a little off-tone occasionally. Uh, you, it may cause you to chuckle when you're not necessarily supposed to. But that's also just a part of low-budget genre movies, I feel like. That's a, you know, a time-honored tradition that there are... There are some tonal problems in many, many of these movies. Uh, they're not going to always be masterpieces, but... Um, but they can be entertaining in many ways. And his performance here is one of the big reasons to watch this movie. Now, he's not on screen as much as I would like. But um, when he is on screen, uh, which is a good chunk of the time, he's definitely what I would call the star, even though this is this is kind of an ensemble with the kids as well. Um, they miss a golden opportunity, yeah. though, because you know who the best character is? It's Tommy Chung's character. I know! Right? Yes. And we didn't <laughs> get a... Tom and they Tom. never have a scene together, don't exactly. they? Exactly! They, they never, never have do. a nope. scene. Like, if Nick yeah. Cage and Tommy Chung were in a scene, it would be incredible, and we never get it. I loved Tommy Chong in this movie. I wish there was more of Tommy Chong's character. I think movies like this need... Tommy Chong plays this kind of, like, kook who lives in a shed uh, in the middle of the woods, and he's basically, like, off the grid at this point, but he's also paranoid, and so he's got cameras all, all around, security cameras all around, and he's got, you know, recording equipment, and he's just keeping an eye on everything, trying to keep informed about everything around him, but trying to stay alone as well. And I love characters like that in almost any movie. And so, of course, in a movie like this where there are aliens coming down and he's the only one who actually knows what's happening, but nobody believes him, of course, because he's a weirdo. Um, I could have used a little more of him, but he's great in this. Absolutely great. And the two of them together, you're right. That was a, that was a missed opportunity, but he still, uh, still walks away pretty good. I have a question. In the original short story, is there a romantic angle in the original story? Because I was confused as to yeah. why they felt that Ward Phillips, who plays that, who's the hydrologist... Um, I think it's Elliot Knight is the actor's name. 
I, I just didn't understand why they felt the need to force the romantic angle between him and the oldest daughter. Because I feel like because there's not enough he, time in the movie to, to establish that sort of a relationship. And also, he looks like he's in his late 20s, and she looks like she's maybe, like, 19. Yeah. <laughs> a little <laughs> weird. <laughs> the casting, considering that there's a, a romantic, you know, very, like, not super developed, but there is, like, a stated attraction... And, like, the actress is in her early, mid-twenties, I think, but she looks way, way younger than she actually is. So the whole time you're just like, eh, is this okay? She's playing younger, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's not playing mid-twenties. She is definitely playing teenager who has to obey her dad and everything like that. So it is a little weird because he clearly is established in his job. Now, he's he's probably a little new at it, you know, maybe just out of college. So we're thinking 23, 24, 25, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. But, um... Yeah, Ward is the weakest character. There was no romance, from what I understand, in the original short story, because there were just sons. Um, there was a surveyor, and the surveyor is the one that narrates the story. But, um, but and yeah, they're like way. He gets there basically after all of this has happened. Yeah. So, but by, by the time he arrives, uh, the Gardner family are all you know gone. Um, but yeah, there there's very 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 rarely any kind of romance in any of Lovecraft's work. It, it was an interesting choice to have uh, Ward be this uh, sort of he's not he, he is kind of the narrator in this movie to, to a certain extent. But you never feel like the story revolves around him in any way or that he is really the observer. It still feels like because of Nicolas Cage's presence. I mean, he is clearly the the most accomplished actor in this movie. Um, that it, it still feels like everything revolves around him, even though. Less so even the family. The daughter clearly has a big part, Lavidia. Um, and she's the very first person that you actually see from the family, mm. meaning that she should be very important. And there's an attempt to make her important, but you can't, because of Cage and his ability to basically suck all of your attention away from anything else, um, it's hard not to see him as the ultimately the one that this story is about, his descent into madness and how he deals with his family as opposed to everybody else. Yeah, it's, it's interesting yeah. that they didn't make Tommy Chung's character the narrator because he's the one who has the security cameras. Like, uh, He has like these security cameras in the woods. He's the one who witnesses, along with them, he's the only other person who witnesses the meteorite crash. He knows what's going on. He believes in it. And I was just like, I thought... Like, I just felt that he should have been the narrator, not this guy, Ward, who just walks into the town. He's a hydrologist. Like, I thought that would have I, been a way better ending. I I definitely agree. The, the film opens and closes with Ward uh, narrating with direct excerpts from uh, the short story. And, you know, it's Lovecraft, so it's kind of uh, not flowery, but it doesn't really sound like someone giving a, a frank appraisal of a situation and i feel like for the language that's used it would make more sense for tommy chong's character to have been the one to do that it would have fit more you know you're you're left wondering why this hydrologist is is sort of speaking this way and describing it in this kind of language it it's a great stab at you know, using some of Lovecraft's own words, but something about it doesn't quite fit. No, because he plays a straight man. Like, he he's the yeah. one and only character who doesn't go insane. Whereas Tommy mm-hmm. Chung's character, it would have made sense. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that would have improved the movie. Well, I mean, I want to hear, like, Thomas, you really, really, you really liked this movie, right? I liked it quite a bit, yes. Yeah. I mean, in spite of all of its flaws, and it has, mm-hmm. it has many, many flaws... I do feel like it's one of the more earnest and wholehearted attempts at adapting a Lovecraft story because, you know, like I said earlier, Lovecraft is not easy to adapt in any way, shape or form. And there have been a lot of different attempts that are trying to put their own spin on it. There was uh, one a few years ago. um, I forget which Lovecraft story it was specifically, but played it sort of like a hokey 50s science fiction movie. Uh, There have been ones that are adapting the bones of the story, but totally go off on their own vibe. And I think this is one of the more earnest attempts at just doing a Lovecraft movie as as 
in the most straightforward way as possible. And I give it a lot of points for that because that's something that kind of takes guts to do, I find. Uh, but again, like I said, it's one of Lovecraft's more sort of easy to grasp stories. So if you're going to do that in anyone, it's the, it's this one. I, I wanted to ask specifically what what Thomas do you think this movie gets right then? So with all these other ad- adaptations that maybe haven't come through, yes, it's it's earnest. But do, what do you actually think that it gets right about Lovecraft? Just the sense of the unknowable, the the sense that there is something encroaching upon our ordered world that we have so little context for that we can barely comprehend it. We we can barely understand what's going on here. And just that sense that, you know, what is happening is completely beyond our ken and it's kind of just to, it's best to just sort of go with it rather than try and rationalize it. The thing is, why do people keep on adapting H.P. Lovecraft stories? Is it just because it's public domain and they can they can do it? Like, or like, because the thing is, it's like I'm like Patrick. I'm not a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft, like the writer from what I've read, which is very little to be fair. But still, what I do like about him is the way he's inspired, influenced all of these storytellers, uh, filmmakers, etc. Mo- moving forward, like you know, like John Carpenter, for example. But mm-hmm. Why do people keep on attempting to adapt his stories if everyone says you can't really adapt these stories to the big screen? It's like, you know what I mean? Like, why? <laughs> well, I think the thing about Lovecraft is he, he, well, he invented cosmic horror as a genre. And he really tapped into something that few, if any, writers had really done before, which, again, is the sense of the sort of unknowable... Uh, outsider entity and Lovecraft really sort of took the science fiction horror uh, genre by storm when he started introducing those ideas and it was a really big like you said influential moment within sci-fi horror so his sort of place in the pantheon is very much set despite all of the problems with his uh, views and beliefs as a person for a lot of his life. So I think his place in that sort of literary history is so set and so uh, massive that people are going to keep talking about him and trying to readapt his works for quite a while. Sometimes it's just about capturing a certain feeling that you got. Yeah. Maybe if you read his books and you get at that feeling, you want to recreate that feeling in movie form. And I can understand the attempt, like wanting to try for it. And yes, you know it's going to be difficult. But there have been you know, uh, novels that were supposedly unadaptable, and people have pulled them off uh, in surprising ways. It, you know, It's not always going to work, and most people are going to fail. But it is uh, – there's you know a valiant – part of at least trying for it and i get the idea that if you're a storyteller if you're a filmmaker you might want to recreate that feeling that you got when you first read these stories um whether or not you succeed is you know (laughs) well that's another okay but then here's my question for patrick so let's say this movie had a really good screenplay every like okay like we've already talked about the cinematography the the soundtrack the, the, the the score the the cast the special effects so everything is good but you get a really good screenplay that you like. Do you think you would love this movie? Or you still would not be like really into it. Yeah, because I think it would be annihilation. I think yeah, exactly I like, <laughs> the good version of this yeah. movie to me is annihilation. <laughs> exactly, which brings up the point: Why do people keep on trying to adapt his stories? You know, faithfully, like word for word, passage by passage, when they can just be inspired by him, but do something original because that seems to work better. In the Mouth of Madness, well, think, The Thing, Annihilation. Say, say you were really into epic poetry, right? You know, Homer. And you wanted to create, recreate that feeling that you got when you read the Iliad. Now, you could come up with another version of the Iliad, but the Iliad's been around for you know almost 3,000 years. And maybe you just want to do the Iliad. And I don't mean <laughs> Wolfgang Peterson's Troy, which had nothing to do with the Iliad for anybody out there who's never read the Iliad. Um yeah, so anyway, you might want to recreate, you know, you might want to adapt the the source material that made you feel this way because it, because it is the authentic one and you you're not sure maybe that you can spin something off in your you know, you're on your own. I don't know, there's something to me about bringing 
to life something that you love. And so I get doing that. You know, whether or not the the, the novel for, you know, Annihilation based on was um, inspired by Colorado Space, it probably was. Um, that's fine if that, that author, you know, sort of came up with their own their own thing and that's great uh but i do see value in also keeping alive some of these old stories because basically you're also introducing new generations to these stories you know lovecraft's dead and gone he's not making any more (laughs) stories and if his name starts you know if his stories don't get retold then they'll be lost and so I understand there is there's value in retelling these stories over and over and over again and giving them another try to keep them alive and inspire future filmmakers or, you know, film goers to go read the actual source material. You know, a, fa- a favorite series of books of mine um, I only got into because I saw the movie and that was Master and Commander, Peter Weir's Master and Commander. Um, I love Peter Weir movies, went to go see it. And next thing I know, I'm reading these 20 novels, you know, historical fiction novels about... 19th century British Navy and loving them, but I would have never got, I would have never even found them or heard of them if I hadn't seen the movie. And so, you know, making something like color out of space, if you're really big into Lovecraft and you want to keep them alive, I see value in actually remaking his stories as opposed to coming up with something of your own. I think there's, there's also a degree of ego when it comes to Lovecraft adaptations, precisely because so many of them have been deemed unadaptable I think there's a lot of filmmakers who are out there who sort of see something like that as a challenge. And I think Richard Stanley might be one of those. And also there's just the, the idea that direct adaptations of Lovecraft haven't really happened a whole lot. And I think a lot of people are under the impression that it hasn't quite been nailed yet. There's no definitively great uh, Lovecraft adaptation that uh, is great for the same reasons that the story might be great. And I think a lot of uh, fans and directors who are fans of his work uh, feel like that is a uh, something that needs to be addressed, and maybe they feel they're the one to do that. Well, this is a deeply personal film for him because yes. he, he got into H.P. Lovecraft because his mom would actually read him the stories when he was younger. He was always a huge fan of H.P. Lovecraft, and when he was making this movie, or when he thought about making the movie, his mom was sick. I think she had cancer. And so when making a movie, his mom actually died, and that's why for him it's a deeply personal film, and that is why in the movie he really focuses on the family who's falling apart physically and mentally. Richard Stanley is a really interesting and incredibly intelligent and really intense man like i don't know tom if you've ever met him at fantasia he's always there (laughs) well um i've never i've never exchanged i've never exchanged words with him but i did i'd forgotten that he was there one year and just saw him conversing to some people and i was i I stood there dumbfounded for a second because i was like oh that's richard stanley over there and he saw that i had spotted him and tipped his hat to me and then I was just like, oh, okay, Richard Stanley just took this hat to me. I have to go hyperventilate for a few minutes. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm a huge fan of hardware, which I really want to review on the show. And so for, like, so here's the thing. When I was younger, and I've told the story many times on the podcast, I would go to video stores and I would rent movies based on the VHS or DVD covers, right? So like a lot, a, a lot of these movies back in the day, they had these amazing covers, like just beautiful art. And so I walked into the video store and I saw this movie called Hardware and it had such a killer cover. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. It's amazing. And I was like, whoa, what is this? So I rented it and I was like, wow, this is like the Terminator, but like what a killer soundtrack and Iggy Pop and it's just awesome. And then years later, I watched Dust Devil and I was like, man, this movie is trippy. Who made this movie? And then I see, like, you know, the credits roll, and it's Richard Stanley. And I'm like, Richard Stanley, that name sounds familiar. Like, who is this? So of course, I, I, you know, I, I go do my research. And sure enough, it's the same man who directed Hardware. And I'm like, whoa. But then I'm like, okay, what else has this guy made? Because that's how I sort of, like, seek out movies. I look at the director, and I try to watch as many movies from the director, you know, based on the fact that I've re- I really, really love this movie I just watched from him, right? And then the guy didn't make any movies. Like, he made The Island of Dr. Monroe, but he got fired after three days on set. And I was like, what? Like, it's just crazy. Like, it's good to see this guy back. You know, like, even if this movie has flaws, um, I think I think it's like, I mean, for the guy to return to filmmaking 
after like like again after like 23 years or some stupidness and still be able to deliver uh, a really I, I mean, regardless if you like it or not, it's, I still think there's a lot to love here. Because, I mean, think about, think of how much the filmmaking industry has changed. Like, even just, like, when it comes to effects, right? So, it's like, for, for this guy to go back into it and to make a movie, and make a movie that relies on CGI and special effects, and this weird unknown villain, which is a color that you can't imagine, and having Nicolas Cage on set going crazy, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy. And this is the first of three movies that he's doing. He's doing a trilogy. So I'm, like, really super excited to see what he does next. It doesn't feel like a, a movie made by someone who's been out of the game for over two decades, for sure. No, especially not with, like, the craft. I might mm. say the writing, <laughs> yes. But, um, but yeah, not not the rest of the craft. It definitely feels like somebody who's uh, who's had this in his head for quite a while. He had a specific vision, and he pulled it off as best that he could with the resources that he had. Um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely something. Again, if somebody is a fan of Lovecraft, Thomas, I think you, you would agree with this. You should definitely mm -hmm. check this out. Uh, oh, yeah. and anybody who's just interested in, in Nicolas Cage wacky performances, uh, if you like those, this is another one to check out. Um, we're going to take a short break here. We're going to play another clip from Colorado Space, and when we come back, we're going to ask our questions. Could you please tell us exactly what happened? Well, there was a boom. Uh, it was a couple nights ago, a boom and a flash of light and a vibration, and we came out and we saw this uh, large uh, rock. Horrible. And, uh, it was Oh my God, couldn't somebody have given me a comb? Jesus. Arkham resident Nathan Gardner, who claims that an unidentified flying object landed in his UFO witness? You said UFO. I didn't say UFO. Oh, for fuck's sake. Teresa, can you get out of here, please? I think the freaked out abductee look suits you pretty well. Very good. So the meteorite, which happened to mysteriously disappear before the time my team and I got here. Teresa, can you please get out here? Mr. Gardner, were you sober at the time that this event happened? Uh, well, I mean, I like a bit of bourbon. Um, uh, it comes out of Texas. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. I was, I was, I was not, the night before I had a few drinks, but I wasn't. I was, I was sober when I came out. Oh, man. Jack, go get your mother. Okay. Yeah, what part of meteorite do you, you not understand? Baby? Dinner's ready. All right, we're back. That was another uh, clip from Color Out of Space. So it is time for our questions here. And again, we're, uh, you know, outside the, the one, I think we're going to try to stay pretty positive on this thing. But we're gonna, we always start off with a, with a positive um, question, which is, what is your favorite scene? Uh, Thomas, let's go to you first. I think for me, as gorgeous as the visuals are, my favorite scene is possibly one of the most drab ones in terms of like things like color palette and art direction, which is the the scene in the attic when they brought the uh, the thing that was once the the mother up to the attic, and it's a really oppressive, depressing scene where they're they're just confronted by this monstrosity that was once uh, something that they love and ends on a fairly grim note but yeah that's the scene for me that uh, sticks most with me yeah that was a good scene i mean there was definitely some good horror elements to that i am going to pick the the like the, the the first few minutes the opening mm -hmm. the actual opening with the narration uh, laced over it um even before you get to lavinia doing her, her witchcraft spell um, in the very beginning. Uh, I'm going to pick that because the the shots of the woods alone and the narration going over it is what really drew me in uh, right off the bat. I think it's very, it's absorbing, utterly absorbing. And I, I was, 
I was all set right then and there. I think the, those shots actually encapsulate the Lovecraftian horror perhaps better than almost anything else because mm-hmm. that sense of dread and the way now this this movie was shot in Portugal, so this is a Portuguese woods. Um, but I could totally imagine it being an East Coast, like you know, around Salem, Massachusetts, ancient, evil, old woods. Um, they 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 just found the perfect locations, and it was photographed amazingly. Rick, what about you? Um, I'm going to choose not the final shot, but I would say like the last 15 minutes when Ward is running through the woods with Tommy Chung, and these giant creatures, like these insects attack them because I think in that scene it really proves that Richard Stanley can really build up the suspense I think it's the only scene in the movie that really moves fast and um, it, it, it's weird like I, it's not just about the cinematography because that scene itself is beautifully shot and lit but it's just the way he captures them running through the woods it's like watching a scene from a movie like Predator or something um, so I really really like that scene and actually like I was kind of disappointed that the movie ended right away because I was like, I want to see more of that. Like that was really cool. I wasn't really, I didn't really care much for the character of Ward, but it was interesting to see. Um, I, I don't know. It was just interesting to see how Richard Stanley like tackled that specific scene. All right. Now you're talking about him running with the sheriff, right? When the sheriff gets pulled up into the trees and yeah. Okay. Yeah. When he gets pulled up into the trees, I thought that was amazing. Yeah, that was, was very right, cool. Very right cool after shooting. they go visit yeah. uh, Tommy Chung, and even when they, even the, the the lead up to the cabin in the woods where Tommy Chung is found dead, like that whole entire lead up was fantastic because you hear, uh, you hear his his his, his rec- the recording of his voice like echoing through like the speakers outside of the cabin, and I just love love that scene. Yeah, very good. Uh, I, I the, the the effects when he gets pulled up. Uh, you're right. It, it felt like something out of Predator or Alien. Um. Definitely really well done and perfect sense of timing. He can construct those those scenes. However, Thomas, mm-hmm. we have to go to this now. If there were one was one thing that you could change about this movie, what would it be? So for me, I am a really big snob when it comes to things like image texture and image quality. And I'm not a huge fan of a lot of uh, digital filmmaking, like digital cameras and there's, you know, it's it's a case-by-case basis. Some filmmakers, some cinematographers, some lighting people can make it look really good. But I think there are scenes, especially in the early parts of the film before, you know, stuff starts, you know, getting weird, that just have that sort of processed look that I'm not a huge fan of. So if I had to change one thing, I don't know. I can't say for sure that it would work, but I would want to see how it would look. I would say shoot this movie on film rather than digital. Shoot it on, you know, 35 and see what that does for the overall look of the film. I would definitely change that. Make it a little more earthy, maybe. Yes, exactly. A little less, you know, sort of clean and, you know, processed looking. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see your point now looking back on that, that it does have that kind of feel to it. And maybe it could have used a little bit more grit in some ways. Yeah. Not not grit, but um, that like green. A, you got to have yeah. that green. <laughs> yeah, it might have actually made it come off as kind of an, uh, a more old school mm-hmm. you know, sci-fi horror film. I, I still think I still think that you can get that look shooting digital. Like every time I've listened to an interview with a cinematographer, they say that they're, they're, you can get the exact same look shooting digital if the people know what they're doing because a lot of it is done in post. So like the difference is like the, the real difference is it's time saving. Like like you shoot your scene from various cameras and you got your footage, you know what it looks like. Whereas with film, you never know what it looks like. But it's about saving time. And yeah, for sure, I would always want a movie to be shot on film. I just don't think they had the budget or the time to do it. Like that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think, uh, I think we already touched on this already, but I, w- I would have liked to have seen more interactions. I didn't think Nicholas Cage was in the movie enough. I'm not, I don't want to say to people that he wasn't in the movie at all. He is clearly the star of this movie, but um, I needed, I, I would have liked to have seen more with him and Tommy Chong uh, kind of going crazy together. I think that needed to happen just for to round everything out, to round out Cage's emotional journey, because he takes it kind of on his own, uh, as opposed to really being involved with the family. The family is, they're a family, but you never get the sense that they're really of a, con- that they're really a connected group. That they like each other, really. 
Yeah, or that they they know each other all that well. And that's fine because that is the way some families operate. Like sometimes they don't communicate very well or know each other that well. But I think Cage goes off on his own journey in this and it needed to be connected to something that that other people were connected to in this movie. And I think Tommy Chong would have been a good person for him to bounce ideas off of or at least to bounce off the fact that he was going nuts or what what reality still was and Chong would have given some you know long-winded you know, circular answer to what reality is and I think that could have helped uh, the audience also process what was going on uh, as, as he descends into madness I, I think it needed a little bit more of that and l- probably less of Ward the hydrologist um, who just keeps popping up in random places so that was a character that I thought could have been written less, and I would have liked to see in Cage more. All right, so Rick, what about you? I totally agree. So because you've already pretty much said what I would say, I'm going to take a moment to highlight a scene I also really like, which is the kitchen scene. I just thought that was another great moment uh, and another great example of how Richard Stanley can really direct and shoot horror because the buildup to it, like, you know she's going to cut off her fingers, but the way the camera just slowly moves in and the way the kid just slowly walks up to her and her reaction and the way she turns around it was like really like that was the scene where i actually wanted to look away it was so so incredibly tense now what would you change though if you had to well that's the thing like you already said i would add more tommy that's... chung and less ward okay so that's the only thing you would change about this okay. oh i think it would be a better movie like if if we had more of uh tommy chung and less of Ward, and forget, like, ditched the romantic angle between him and the teenage daughter, which in itself is bizarre, uh, I think it would be a far better uh, film. And it's not just because Tommy Chung is, I think, uh, as an actor, he's just a lot more interesting and charismatic to see on screen, but his character just sort of, like, again, it, it would make more sense if he was the uh, the narrator of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that goes against the book in many ways because the surveyor was the the narrator and I understand why they have that character in there. Um, They just could have done something a little bit different with him maybe. All right, so we already touched on this as well and who knows, we may not all agree on this one. But um, all right, now it's time to ask, who do you guys think is the MVP of this movie? Thomas, who do you say? Well, I would be inclined to say something like the production designer uh, just because the look of the movie is so integral to what i think really works about it it's kind of hard to say where the um where the credit needs to go for that production designer cinematographer uh, you know uh, people who did the lighting sound design all of that really you know blends together and i i think it's hard to say uh, that it was the um, the result of any one person's work, so, uh, so I would just sort of lump it in with um, the art department. Everyone responsible for the look of the film is my MVP because if this film didn't look as beautiful as it did, it wouldn't be nearly as worth talking about as it is now. We we always talk about this on the show, like if 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 I for example, choose a cinematographer, we, we're never really entirely sure who makes the decisions. Like in this in right. this case, like it's shot on digital. So I'm assuming a, uh, most of it is done in post, like the colors, oh. the color saturation, the, the filters. So it's like, yeah, who do you credit? <laughs> like it's hard to know. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I mean, part of it is also, you know, the person who scouted the locations and the person who built the sets, they, they add so much texture to what a cinematographer gets to shoot that they can make those shots look good just simply by what objects they pick to place around the house or, you know, there's all sorts of things. Um, I understand that make it hard. Uh, obviously I think the, the number one choice here of MVP goes to the alpacas who I always agree. hit their mark and pro- they provided the crew with delicious milk, uh, clearly. <laughs> and, the, the alpaca who, but do you guys know that, that that's actually a thing where I don't know when it was, but people in the United States were buying alpacas because for some reason they were getting scammed and people were making them believe that this was like the animal of the future. And people oh, still have alpacas really? and they can't afford to feed the animals, so they're actually starving. Like I read this whole entire article about it. It's insane. Yeah, it's definitely I think that an emu. I remember emu was gonna be it was gonna replace uh, all other meats as well. Um and and you know, <laughs> I would be willing to bet that Richard Stanley probably read that same article and just thought, oh, well, I'm going to put this in my movie. 
Well, the, him or him or Nicholas Cage. The uh, the alpacas felt like something Nicholas Cage would have come up with. It was just, his idea, though. It was Stanley. It was Stanley. Oh, yeah. Okay. He said he said initially he just wanted a different animal. Like he didn't want like a a cow because we've seen yeah. cows in like horror films on farms before. So mm-hmm. maybe he did some research and found the article, but it was his idea to include alpacas. So my real pick is going to be Nicolas Cage, because even though I think that the, their movie has a beautiful look to it, I don't think it would have held my interest without at least one of the central actors being magnetic. And I didn't really find the rest of the cast to be that. Um, so I needed somebody to, to latch on to. And he was that that thing to latch on to in this movie. Um, because it was different for me, like In the Mouth of Madness, I think is an absolutely gorgeous film from start to finish. I do not think that Colorado Space is gorgeous from start to finish. And there are there are long stretches where it's kind of flat, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have Cage and Cage is what holds those those stretches together. So I am going to give it to him because no matter what he's doing, he's always highly, highly watchable, uh, whether he, whether he takes you out of the 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 scene for a little bit or not um or draws you in you know he's always watchable and entertaining in various ways so i'm gonna give it to him because i think he he actually holds the entire movie together whereas uh like i said i, I thought the the cinematography and the production design does for a lot of it um uh, but it, it can't it doesn't sustain for me for me the vip is nicholas cage for the same reason like think of the scene when the news reporters show up and then it cuts to the the interview with him and they're watching it uh, on TV. Mm. Like, just that scene, he's so funny. Like, he, he steals the scene. Like, he takes a very simple scene. And, and I don't know if it was written like that or if that's just something they improvised on set. But I just, like, I love that scene. I couldn't stop laughing. He's like, because he, 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 he comes across as a crazy person who's also drunk. And imagine seeing an, uh, a UFO land on land on his backyard, and all of a sudden the next day the meteorite slash UFO disappears. And so they make him look like a crazy person in this news report, but he plays into it. And that's what I love about Nicolas Cage. And the funny thing is there's one point in the movie where I think it's the daughter or the son turns to – no, I think it's the, the – the, yeah, the daughter I think turns to the the son, and she's like, oh, dad's acting weird. And I'm like – He's been acting weird since the start of the movie. Like, your dad's a weird dude. <laughs> I know, right? Like, it's like, just... And, like, if, they, if they'd grown up with Nicolas Cage as their dad, you, you got to wonder, are they like, oh, yeah, this is this is how dad always acts. This is just normal for us. This is our mm-hmm. lives. Yeah, I mean, right away when he's cooking them dinner at the very beginning, he's acting like a complete weirdo. I <laughs> <laughs> should have absolutely known. Uh, all right. So last question is the one we always we like to do is, do you think this movie stands the test st- will stand the test of time? This is something that you can see yourself rewatching over and over again in the future. Do you think that future audiences will be able to watch this movie and get as much out of it? Um, Before we answer, are we not doing the Howard Hawks test? Oh, we can do the Howard Hawks test if you want. All right. I so like we're we, have, we have another answer. one. <laughs> Thomas, are you aware of the Howard Hawks test? Yes, it does it have uh, at least one perfect scene? Um, three, three good scenes and no bad ones. That's what right. I, any great movie should have three good scenes and no bad ones. Right. Thomas, do you think that Colorado Space qualifies? Um, I think it certainly has scenes where I, I struggle to find the point. Uh, you know, there are scenes where I'm, I look back at them and I'm like, why is that scene in the movie, specifically the, uh, the alpaca milking scene? I just look back at that and I'm just like, why does that exist? And I think when I'm asking that question about a scene, it's sort of, it's, that's everything that needs to be said. If I don't know why it's here, then I don't think I can on, in all good conscience, call it a bad, uh, or, or call it a good scene. So I'm going to say no in this case. I don't think it does pass the test. I'm going to agree for the same reason. I think this, the movie has three great scenes. Three scenes that I walked away and I, I, rem- I still remember those scenes like vividly. But I think it has bad scenes and that's the problem. So like the three great scenes, like we've talked about it. But it does have a few scenes that I question the reason for, <laughs> you know, like why is the scene here or why is this character doing this? 
And so the writing is the writing is also problematic. So yeah, it does not pass the Howard Hawks test. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think I can actually point to the very first official scene as being one of those scenes that, uh, looking back, doesn't matter and is in fact a a, a bad scene. Um, and that is when Lavinia is is uh, doing some of her Wiccan rituals and Ward walks in on her. I think that's a completely unnecessary scene and has nothing to do with the rest of the movie and never pays off in any way. And yet it is the first scene. And yeah. Um, but outside that, yeah, it does it does have good scenes. Um, there there are several bad ones as well. Um, I don't think it passes the test. So we can just move on from that. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you think it would, but not every movie does pass the Howard Hawks test, and yet they can still last for quite a while. So Thomas, do you think that Colorado Space can stand the test of time? I think so. I don't think there's anything in it that's really going to date it. For future generations, I, I think we've talked quite uh, quite a bit about the effects, and uh, you know maybe some of the CGI is going to look a little bit uh, less than stellar in a few years. But I think this is one that uh, Lovecraft movie fans are going to be revisiting. I think I'm definitely going to revisit it at some point in the future. So overall, I would say yes. I think this will stand the test of time for the most part. Yeah, I don't think that it's there's anything in there. Like the CGI doesn't bug me at all. Honestly, there are Marvel movies that, that don't their yeah. effects don't stand the test of time anymore, and they had all the money in the world. So nothing here was was egregious on that front. I think that if you can get into this type of movie, there's nothing that's gonna nothing in the movie that's gonna stand in its own way from lasting. But if someone is into this type of horror, I don't see how this will become dated at any point. So, but the thing is, is I'm going to say yes, too, because first of all, it's based on a H.P. Lovecraft story. H.P. Lovecraft has a huge following. So that in itself, like people are just going to want to check it out just because they'll be curious. But I also think because it stars Nicolas Cage, right? Like, like if this movie was made and it didn't star Nicolas Cage, it was like a nobody actor and it never had a theatrical release. Like people might just like forget about it. Like it might not even, you might not even be able to find a way to watch the movie like considering that there's like no more video stores right like it might not be on like uh on on video on demand it might like who knows but i think because of nicholas cage because of hb lovecraft i think people will still be watching and talking about this movie in like 20 30 40 years i don't think it's the kind of movie that professors were would use in like film class to teach their their film students about like i don't know production design or, or acting or whatever but I think, yeah, I think really Nicolas Cage. That's why Nicolas Cage is the MVP. Like, not just because of his star power, but because he actually works in the role for, for I mean, just for the majority of the film. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, because of him, it got a theatrical release. I saw it in theaters. Um, it's not out on VOD here in the States quite yet because it is still playing in theaters, um, which is an impressive thing in and of itself for this movie. I, I don't think it would have, you know, I think it would have been relegated to VOD had he not been in it. Um, but, yeah, another reason why it could stand the test of time is also that there just aren't that many, like Thomas, you were saying, that many direct uh, Lovecraft adaptations. And so fans of that author's work We'll only have so many choices, and for that reason, it should st stick around at least for a little while until until something actually becomes maybe a definitive Lovecraft work. I think this would make a really good. Just thinking about it right now, this would make a really good double bill with uh, Reanimator, the Jeffrey Combs uh, Reanimator film <laughs> from the nineteen eighties. Eighties, yeah. I think they would pair very well together. You would have to watch Reanimator after Color Out of Space because that movie yes. is just amazing. Yes. And by the time you watch Reanimator, you're going to be bored with Color yeah, Out of Space. Yeah, like you need to you need to to place them right because Reanimator. You're not going to top Reanimator as much as I like this movie. It doesn't top Reanimator. So you start here and then you go Reanimator and then maybe Bride of Reanimator. If you it's funny because I think the best double billing is actually Color Out of Space with Mandy, and I actually have. Mm -hmm. It marked in the calendar that we're going to review Mandy, I think, in April or end of March. I'm not sure. So I think that's the best double bill. That'd be a good pair. Yeah. That sounds interesting. Uh, theater programmers out there listening, take note. 
Uh, with that, though, I think we're going to wrap it up, guys. So that was uh, Colorado Space. And uh, Thomas, thank you for joining us. Where can we find you online? Oh, I'm on Twitter at uh, TomTypesWords. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, mostly there. I, I haven't uh, written a full-length review in a while, but you can uh, find me on Facebook at uh, Tom Watches Movies if you're interested in uh, seeing what I have coming up next. Yeah, and you can find a lot of Tom, Thomas's articles on Goomba Stops, the Tom Watches movies. Uh, there is a, a category for that. You should, guys should definitely check it out. you got some really good ones in there uh, that every once in a while I think about. Like, <laughs> oh, thank you. From, from some of the past series that you did on King Kong and and the uh, the sci-fi, the 80s sci-fi ones that you did. Yeah, those are all very good. Um, and, of course, you can find me, Patrick Murphy, online uh, at Sorted, on Twitter at Sorted Cinema and, of course, at Goombastomp.com. Rick, where can we find you? I handled the Twitter account for Goombastomp, but I think I just changed the handle. And I think now it's Goombastomp Mag. Because originally we had Goombastomp Mag, and I changed it for, like, a split second, and someone grabbed it. And now they finally, like, let it go, so I got it back. So, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because 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 before it was complicated because it was Goomba Stomp, but with the letter uh, with the number with zero, zero. And it was, yeah. So it's Goomba Stomp Mag, Goomba Stomp Mag on Twitter, and of course you can listen to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, Podbean on the website, SortedCinema.com, GoombaStomp.com. It's everywhere, and it's on YouTube. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can check it out pretty much anywhere. Please leave us a rating, a review. Reviews are great. Or, you know, message us. Uh, leave a comment on, uh, on on the website. Anything like that. We'd love to hear from people. Love to hear what you think of the show. So definitely uh, definitely drop us a rating if you can. Really helps helps us out. All right. Next week, we'll be back with um, a review of the movie Brazil. All right. We'll see you then. Yeah, come on, girl. Jack? What are you doing? Shh. He's talking to me. Who? Who's talking to you? Man in the well. Okay.